Merry Christmas, everyone. Welcome to Journey with Care, where we're unwrapping the true spirit of the season. Join us as we dive into some Christmas traditions we've embraced as Christians. So get out your candy canes, stockings, Christmas trees, carols. Ho, ho, hold on here. Let's back it up. Because beneath the tinsel and carols, there's a deeper story to be told. This Advent, we'll be daring to reassess our hallmark Christianity for a more honest yet hopeful look at Middle Eastern Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. So get ready for an Advent journey that goes beyond the holiday glitz as we question, explore, and unravel truth. Because walking in light of that truth will ultimately make this season more meaningful to us. This is our Advent series, The Out of Sync Christmas. This second week of Advent is all about joy. If you're craving joy and want more than that quick buzz you get from shopping or opening a gift, you've come to the right episode. I'm your host, Wendy Park, and in studio, we have a guest who radiates joy. She's spunky. She's smart. She's a girl that can preach. Nikayla Reese is in the house, and I can't wait to get started in today's topic. So I hope you fasten your seatbelts. We're not holding back as we dive into the topic of joy. Or is it capitalism? But before we dive into the conversation, let me tell you about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by DG Inspired, your go-to creative powerhouse for elevating your ideas into stunning reality. Whether you're dreaming up a brand refresh, an outstanding website, or eye-catching graphics, DG Inspired has got your back. Dorlin and her team have been creative geniuses behind Care Impact and can do the same for you. Head over to dginspired.com to bring your ideas to life. All right, let's get into the conversation. Nikayla Rees, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I have been so excited to have you here as well. We met when we were both in Waterloo at a New Leaf Network gathering in Waterloo, Ontario, just recently. And uh, it was really refreshing to hear you speak at this conference. And I am so delighted to introduce you to many of our audience here today. So, Nikayla, tell me a little bit about yourself. I know you're a lead pastor at Awaken Church in Calgary, Alberta. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I've been a pastor here in Bonex for just over four years. Uh, we're a small community parish, and we're a part of the Canadian Baptists. Before that, I was a pastor with the Baptist General Conference in Canada. And before that, I was a youth pastor for five or six years with uh, AGC Associated Gospel Churches. But ever since, you know, that whole sort of 15-year journey, I was either doing my bachelor's, my master's, or my PhD. And for the last seven years, I've gotten to teach as a sessional at Ambrose University and Alberta Bible College. At Ambrose, I teach Old Testament and I teach biblical theology. My favorite course is a course I built called A Biblical Theology of Human Flourishing. And it centers on my, my master's and PhD research has been all around Sabbath and Jubilee. And so it kind of gets to that question of like, what is the vision? Because I think as Christians, we get caught up on like what not to do, what not to be, what not to think. Yeah, no, that's so good. Yeah. So it's like, well, well, what is the vision, the good life? Like, what does it mean through the lens of scripture to be flourishing? And for me, that comes down to Sabbath and Jubilee, the way I understand it. So what do you mean by Jubilee and Sabbath? Give us an understanding of what that means. Yeah. Um, and I have to be careful because it's like my most favorite topic, so I can go off. <laughs> and of course, I'm in like the 
thick of my PhD research on it, so I can go on and on and on. But I kind of grew up, you know, probably like a lot of people listening, where this I understood what the Sabbath day was. You know, I guess in my tradition it was Sunday, and it's like my parents didn't really make a big deal of it, but I knew that like at grandma's house, you know, you probably weren't going to go outside and play or. It was just like, you're not supposed to do certain things on this day. And when I think of the Ten Commandments, you have like, do not kill, and you have keep the Sabbath. And it's hard to think of those two as being equal, like on the same plane. And I remember reading in the New Testament, always being really intrigued by the way Jesus would get in trouble on the Sabbath day, um, because <laughs> Jesus would be healing someone most often, and, and religious leaders would approach him like, hey, you're not allowed to do that. I remember just thinking, oh, that's ridiculous. Like Jesus is doing something good. He's helping people. Like who are these oh, religious leaders who are so judgy? Like, and then you just kind of move, move on from the story. But then again, you know, I did my master's in the Old Testament and it's like, we can't deny that the Sabbath command was extremely important in the Old Testament. It's called the sign of the Mosaic covenant. The same as like circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant or the rainbow, the sign of the Noah covenant. Like, this is a really important thing. The Sabbath day is everything in the Old Testament, especially after the exile when there's no more temple. Observing the Sabbath is sort of how you differentiated um, yourself from all the other cultures. So I just couldn't accept that Jesus is like, oh, it doesn't really matter. You know, if you got stuff to do on, this, on a Sunday, don't be, don't be so legalistic. And, you know, and Jesus has that line that's like, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Like, it's fine. And I'm just like, that doesn't line up with the rest of the story that Jesus is like, this one doesn't matter. And especially in our culture now when we're all very burnt out and exhausted. And not just because we've been like moving our bodies for six days, but we're exhausted in our hearts, right? in our, in our psyche. Especially post-pandemic, we're trying yeah. to find those rhythms. We're trying to catch up. We're trying to unfortunately get back to normal. And uh, yeah, we're feeling it. Yeah. And, and, and so I noticed like people are tired, people are burnt out. And when I really get into the Old Testament and start looking at what Sabbath is, the thing that blows my mind, which I feel like we've forgotten as a church in the West, and we could just park our cars here for the next decade, is that the Sabbath day is a glimpse of the full picture. You have every seven days this sort of thing you do for one day, which maybe doesn't feel very significant where everybody rests. But then every seven years, there's the sabbatical year. So this is a full year where people who are enslaved are released to freedom um, and all debts are forgiven. The land rests, so we don't take from the, the land. The land gets a break from giving. And then, you know, that'd be pretty radical. That'd be a, have pretty big economic mm -hmm. implications. And then every seventh Sabbath year, so every 50th year, once a generation, you have this year of jubilee. And Jubilee is like the Sabbath year, but much bigger, a much bigger deal. And it includes the return of ancestral land. So you see this as like the year of Jubilee is what protects us from intergenerational poverty. Because you might have a family that suffers for reasons that, you know, it's not their fault. Like someone gets sick, a sudden death, a natural disaster, a house burns down, a basement floods. There's all sorts of ways that someone could sort of get behind Right. Today. And then their kids grow up, but they can't pay for college. Their kids have to get a student loan. And then those kids have a hard time paying off their student loan. They got to work while they're in college. They don't get the best grades. They don't get the best jobs. And you just see this poverty can just follow them generation to generation. And year of Jubilee says, no, once per generation, we're going to redistribute the wealth. All debts are forgiven. 
And that's not debts forgiven like the lady at church owes me 40 bucks. This is like the bank calls and forgives you for your mortgage. The bank Mm. calls and forgives you for your student loans, your car payments. We forgive you. And is there a correlation to what our modern day we would know as like being jubilated, like a joy? Is that the derivative of what we would experience as joy? Yes, absolutely. The word for the jubilee is associated with is release. And it's a joyful release as in like uh, being released from bondage, like released from slavery, released from captivity, released from a, an abusive contract that you've been obligated to and released from debt. So you think when you sign a contract with the bank, when you get a mortgage. So it's like, what are the bonds that I have? What are the, the toxic um, relationships I have with the bank, with Visa, MasterCard, those burdens? Just what would it feel like to suddenly on one day you get like three phone calls in a row, your debts are forgiven, your debts are forgiven, your debts are forgiven. You know, I have people in my life that have gone through a lot, that are going through a lot, that have had generational issues that they are now living through in the current day. And I know that they would love that call. They would love to be released. And we're working with them for release in in some ways, but it's not coming in the same way. I would love to dive into a little bit of your, you recently wrote an article that really, I love the the title in itself, is Only Demons Possess Things. Like what a captivating title that is. And you talk about the correlation of capitalism versus jubilee. Can we talk a little bit about that? How does capitalism, how is that antithetical to, to jubilee? Yeah. In order to answer this question well, and I'm going to do this quickly, and so I guess this is just my Bible nerdy brain, but um, the beginning of the entire biblical story is the exodus from Egypt. And so you have these people who are enslaved to Pharaoh. And when you first meet Pharaoh and the enslaved people in the Bible, uh, it's at the end of Genesis where Pharaoh has all of the wealth. He has control of all of the food. And the people of the land are coming to Pharaoh, giving him all of their money to get grain. They go home, they run out of grain, they return, they sell their livestock to get grain. They go home, they run out of grain. Then they begin to sell themselves as debt slaves. And then the book of Exodus opens and the entire people, all of the Hebrew people are enslaved to the one who has control over all of the resources. He is the one on top. So this this liberation narrative where Yahweh, God, rescues the people from Pharaoh, it's kind of set up where there's two kings, Yahweh and Pharaoh. So Pharaoh manages food this way. Pharaoh manages the economy this way. Pharaoh absolutely believes that if you work hard, you get rich. And if you're lazy, you get poor. He believes in his system. And Yahweh's system is entirely antithetical to Pharaoh's system. They are diametrically opposed. When Jesus says you cannot serve both God and mammon, it's you cannot serve both Yahweh and Pharaoh. So the system, so every time you have this language of empire, whether it's the king of Babylon or the Caesar of Rome, you always have to call to mind that Pharaoh character who has control of everything. And the way he has control of everything is this predatory debt economy. So you are in debt and and he manages everything. You can't buy food. You can't buy shelter. And so you have this system that just benefits from people's poverty. Wow. It depends on debt. And the liberation story of our faith is God rescuing people from Egypt. Now, before they go from Egypt into their own land, there's this 40-year wilderness wandering where an entire generation has to unlearn Egypt 
before they can become the alternative thing, which is what holiness means in the Bible, set apart. Mm -hmm. You will not run your economy the way Pharaoh does. You will be set apart. And so the law where we get the Sabbath day, the Sabbath year, jubilee, love your neighbor as yourself, these are all texts of resistance to shape a people's imagination to be alternative to Pharaoh's. Mm. So Pharaoh does not know about Sabbath rest. And, and the wild thing is in the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, most, most people only know the Ten Commandments because they memorized it in Sunday school. So you just get the short version like, do not kill, do not steal, keep the Sabbath, honor your mom and dad. Yeah. Um, but the full, the full text in the Sabbath one is radical because it says, you shall keep the Sabbath, both you, your sons and daughters, your male and female slaves, the foreigner and the immigrant among you, and all of your livestock. Hmm. So you realize this command is not being spoken to everyone. An enslaved person can't take a day off. They do not have access to that privilege. <laughs> this command is being spoken to the landowners who have enough wealth to have debt slaves. And to keep the Sabbath command is to make sure on this day, both you and the people below you have rest equal to you. So in Deuteronomy, it's like you, your sons and daughters, your male and female slaves, the foreigner, the immigrant, all of your livestock, like your slave animals, um, because you yourselves were slaves in Egypt. You must keep the Sabbath so that your slaves can rest as well as you can. So in that way, it is an act of resistance. Yeah. And I'm curious, as a pastor, you're a lead pastor in your church, Awaken. How do you work in a capitalistic society, a culture that really thrives on bank cards and get rich and move up the ladder, a pharaoh mentality. How are you wrestling through this in your pastoral work? How do you embody that as a local church? Yeah, on a really practical level, and I think anybody listening who's in church leadership will relate, is um, people's volunteer capacity now post-pandemic is so much lower than before. Oh, I hear it all the time from pastors. Yes. Like no one, no one wants to volunteer anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's weird because as a pastor, I'm actually like really proud of my congregants because they're like setting boundaries. They're like, my time is precious to me. My energy is precious to me. And I actually can't do this. Mm -hmm. I'm cheering them on for that self-advocacy. But then I'm like, dang, we don't have any volunteers. We're going to have to shut these ministries down. And I'm noticing it's like not not my congregants specifically, like everyone is like, mm -hmm. In this system of capitalism, the, the, the system that, that we currently live under, of course, you don't have any extra time and energy to work towards the common good. Like my mortgage is way more than I can afford. And in my, even from my generation to my parents' generation, like my mortgage could not be paid unless my spouse and I were dual income, mm -hmm. which means our kids have to go into childcare, which means I'm only making $4.75 an hour after I pay for childcare. Right. So I actually have to work 60 hours a week in order for the $4.75 I make after childcare to go towards the bills. Wow. So, but I miss my kids. So I try to like sometimes wake up at 4 a.m. and get a few hours of work in before, you know, the day starts so that I don't take away time from my kids. And you, you add it up and add it up and you're like, when do you sleep? When do you rest? Never. I can't. I'm listening. I'm listening. I, I, I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If I get a day off work, I'm coming home to clean. I'm coming home to catch up on laundry. It's laundry day. Yeah. So then I get an email from the pastor that's like, do you want to take on a Sunday school class? No, I don't. I can't. My life, my strength, my heart, my soul, my body belongs to Pharaoh. I have, a, I have bills to pay. I have a visa. I have a line of credit. 
I have no imagination for life outside of this system. It's just the way it is. And so I have this massive house and I don't know any of my neighbors and I suspect they're all threats. So I put my time and money into building security systems mm-hmm. and protecting my stuff because I've been trained to believe that all of my energy goes into paying for this stuff. Yeah. So then once I have it, I must put any last remnants of energy into protecting it. So if you break into my house, I need to know I have the right to shoot. Right. And somehow the idea of like love your neighbors yourself is just gone. Yeah. I I can't. And so as a pastor, I'm like, I don't want to take and I don't want to guilt people and say, but please find time. Like, please find time to come help with the church. I need it. Now people are at church and they're laboring and the tank is being drained even by the church. I don't want that. Yeah. And so it's been really profound. This church, when it was planted, I have so much respect for the the people who had the vision. Um, even though we're Baptists, evangelicals, the church was very much planted with this parish model where everybody lives in the neighborhood. And the idea was that we're going to share stuff. Like, we don't all need a lawnmower. You, lawn, you mow your lawn eight times a year. Right. We'll just share a lawnmower. We don't all need camping gear. Yeah. I'll have the tent. You have the sleeping bags. That guy's got the cool water filter. And then we all have what we need. And so this group just created this sense of common ownership. And there was like a a Facebook group just for the church and then just ways that the church could communicate. And it's incredible to watch people be like, hey, my brother-in-law's in town. I need a pair of men's skates size 10. Oh, I got a pair. Oh, I got a pair. I need this. I need that. And suddenly it's like, I have a 10-year-old and a 6-year-old. I've never bought them clothing because there's kids in my community who are older than my kids and they give me their clothes. I don't buy winter boots. I'm like, which kid in the community just outgrew their boots? And it's that idea of it's breaking away from the capitalist, like Christian savior mentality where I'm going to be the benefactor that goes and helps people. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be someone that asks for help. That's right. And community really becomes that resistance towards capitalism of individualism, materialism, the things that we're enslaved to. Because let's face it, I'm all for community, but it takes sacrifice to think differently than what I feel the waters I swim in wants me to like have it for myself, the time for myself. And it it's sacrifice to share it with others. And yet the payback for that or the the results of that when we live in equitable community is so amazing. And I think what happens in capitalist system is your value in society is based on how productive you can be. And the proof of your productivity is how nice your things are. (laughs) And so I can't actually invite you over to my house until I've spent an hour cleaning. Because if you could see how I actually live and you actually could see how exhausted and burnt out and overwhelmed I am, then you would know that I'm not actually productive and I don't actually have value. So I have to rage clean for 20 minutes and then have you over and try not to break and try not to crack because you might think that there's something wrong with me because my value is based on having it all together and being productive. You have to. That's how you make it. So then you have to push through ego. And like, how Christian is that? To invite someone in and say, do you want to help me climb my laundry mountain today? Our kids could play in the other room and you and I could just sit down in front of this mountain. I have not folded my laundry in four weeks and some of it might smell mildewing where you're going to help me and I'll get that back in the wash. Yeah. And we'll fold this together and and connect. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, 
I can't, my ego, I could never, if someone could see, I could never do that. And then I all Mm -hmm. of a sudden hear Paul saying, boast in your weaknesses, boast, say, look, and it becomes radically anti-capitalist to ask for help. And you can't ask for help until you can acknowledge that you need help. That's right. Which is what it means to tell the truth. And if you go back to that Exodus liberation story, it begins in Exodus 3, God appears in a burning bush and says, I've heard the cries of my people which means the people initiated emancipation because they dared to cry out. It's like nothing in the system is going to change if I can't call my neighbor and cry out and say, I need help. I'm overwhelmed. Can we share a lawnmower? You know what I mean? Like you cry out. And it's when you bring your pain to speech and tell the truth that you energize an alternative way of living, a new a movement. And so it's like, as a Christian, sometimes it's like, do you guys want to volunteer and we can be helpers and saviors and rescue the poor people? It's like, what if the way of Christ is to tell the truth that this system isn't working? That's right. In the capitalist system, I think of like my grandparents or my parents even, it's like, dad has to work 60 hours a week at a job he hates, at a job that is destroying the environment, a job that is absolutely oppressive. And the only way he can do that is if there's a wife at home making sure all the laundry's done, the cooking's done, the grocery shopping's done, and all of that. So he doesn't have to worry about it. He can put his entire work and allegiance into serving the economy because he has a wife at home managing the rest of it. And if the church is co-opted by capitalism, we say that's biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. (laughs) And I'm like, how many women are we going to sacrifice to Pharaoh's womanhood? How many men are we going to sacrifice to Pharaoh's manhood? And when we say God is coming to liberate us from our idols, Mm -hmm. it's what's best for the economy. Yeah, but innocent human beings are suffering. Yeah, but the economy. Mm. But if we run out of water, like if we poison all the headwaters, but the economy. That's right. That's the idol. And and so I just think, as a pastor, I used to think, how can I rally people to go out and, and rescue? And now I'm like, how can we create safe space so that people could admit that they need to be rescued? That's right. If we could start off in that premise and in that humble posture to receive help and to need others. I think that's our number one problem often within the church is that do we really need God and do we really need others? If we could learn to need each other, how God created, that's not a deficit. Actually, God created us for that. And so we've somehow, in a capitalistic view, that's somehow we're not self-sufficient enough or that we are less than if we are interdependent on each other. And yet that is the strength, that is the jubilee, that is the, the Sabbath that God is inviting us into so that we might have joy. Oh, totally. It's that movement of, of like when we start sharing things and admitting that we have needs and boasting in our weaknesses, we discover like friendship and intimacy and a sense of I'm going to be okay. And love flows from that. And it's like, that's the space that you show up and you're like, I want to participate in more of this. And so with the article I wrote in the title, Only Demons Possess Things, I was really reflecting on the difference between a gift economy and a wage economy. And a wage economy is like, you work for me and I pay you. So it's an exchange. Right. Um, whereas a gift economy, you don't have to pay back. Right. 
I love the story that you included, and we'll we'll include the link in the show notes if you're okay with that for your article. But the story you talked about with an elder where you painstakingly made a quilt as a gift. And this is a it, it was very powerful. Can you briefly share that story? Yeah, this is the thing that blew my mind. Um, I've been super privileged. Um, my husband got a job with an Indigenous-led agency uh, several years ago. And part of his job, he was working alongside this Cree elder and helping kind of set up for ceremony. And it was like a really special role. And uh, he, he sort of got to participate and, and learn from this elder. And sometimes at a special event, I would kind of come along in like the most hospitable community and really loved it. But growing up in a very white, uh, evangelical, Albertan context, I had a lot of hangups in my heart and fears about the idea of like indigenous ceremony. And I'm a pastor. And so there was like complex feelings there. But sure enough, I'm just encountering like the most generous, humble, kind people. And I'm like, every ceremony, every prayer, all of this, I'm like, this sounds like Psalm 115. This sounds like Jeremiah 20. Like this feels so Jesus-y. And I'll never forget the moment where I, I just, I felt really convicted. Um, I knew that there's this, there was this tradition of like bringing gifts for the elder, like as like an offering or something else. Like, oh, it just sounds like a payment. Like if I'm, if I bring a gift of $20, that's not a gift. I'm just paying $20 to participate mm-hmm. in this event. This isn't really a gift. And then I was a little bit just in my heart being like, oh yeah, a gift. Oh, don't forget to bring your payment. And then my husband's like, it's not a payment, it's a gift. And uh, I had this kind of attitude. And there was this ceremony that I was going to, and uh, I had known kind of months in advance that I was going to go and there would be like a special part of the ceremony where that the elder would honor me. And I was excited, but I knew I had to bring a gift. They don't tell you it's not like an actual wage where it's like, your gift should be $50. It's like, it's mm-hmm. just a gift. And I'm like, what kind of gift? What are we talking? Like, it should just be something that means a lot to you or like something that comes from your heart. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to make a quilt. I had some fabric and uh, my machine, sewing machine was out. And wow, that's ambitious. Yeah, it was <laughs> definitely. This was my Enneagram 3. So I uh, <laughs> put together this quilt and I was excited because I was going to show off how awesome I am. <laughs> and when I arrived at the ceremony, it was in a gift bag and I kind of presented my gift bag thinking that the elder would like pull it out of the bag in front of all of these people there. And they'd be like, wow, did you make that? You're amazing. And uh, <laughs> that's not what happened. He, he kind of went outside of the, the lodge and I kind of pulled it out, but I, would, I hadn't even pulled it all the way out. And he was like, oh, that's beautiful. Great. Like you can put it back in the bag. Thanks. And I was like, okay, what do I do? Like, what's the... He's like, no, it's fine. You can just put it in the bag. And I was like, what? Like, you owe me. And this is how I feel about debt. Um, you owe me. Like, you you owe me respect. You owe me gratitude. You owed me a thank you. Like, you you owed me honor. Like, oh, I kind of felt a little bit cheated there. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, I'm kind of just being very overgeneralizing about the complex feelings. But later on, there was this very old woman and she sort of um, noticed the quilt because at this point it was sort of out of the bag on the table. And she's like, oh, wow. And, and she was very old and she was spe- speaking slowly. And it was like, this is very beautiful. And then the elder who next to her, he kind of looked really young. He was like, it's for you. It's a gift. And she pulled it out. Oh, I, thank you. Mushroom, thank you. I, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And she kind of wrapped it. Oh, I'm, I love it. And folded it up and she's holding it. And I'm sitting right there. Like, mm. is he going to say, is he going to tell her that like, I'm, and I know like this guy loves to tease and, and make fun. Is like credit rollings at the end. Right? He's totally like winking. And there's like, you know, there's nothing like cruel. I think just my very white Western wage economy self right. was like, this transaction didn't go down the way it's supposed to. Like there should be an equal exchange here. Like if I give you a gift, 
if I give you a sweater and you're not paying me, you at least have to wear the sweater every time you see me. Yeah. Like there's got to be some kind of exchange here, right? Or else you're stealing from me. Yeah. And so eventually at, at the end of the the lodge, I asked him about it in a sort of playful way. And then he responded playfully back and he said, it's a gift. And I was like, I know it was a gift. And and he's like, but gifts are forgiving. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, I'm not, I'm not getting it. And he's like, a gift has to always be a gift. If you give me a gift, the best way I honor it is I protect it from ever becoming a possession. Uh-huh. So you give me this quilt you made and I say, this is mine now. I don't want any, anybody to touch it and get their greasy fingers on it. It's mine. Right. It's then mine. it becomes a possession. Yeah. And then it, it just goes out sometimes on display, but otherwise it's folded up in my closet and eventually it just stays there because it goes out of fashion because the real reason we have possessions is to show the world we're productive and we have trendy stuff. <laughs> He's like, it just goes up in the closet and then you die. And then your children take it to Goodwill. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, he's like, I didn't want that. I don't want that. He's like, it was a gift. You bring a gift. And then that woman says, I love it. She'll have it at her house and someone will be there, maybe one of her grandchildren, and she'll give it to them as a gift. And then it will go on as a gift and it will go on as a gift. And what a beautiful example of God's gift to us. It's truly a gift that cannot be earned. There's no transaction. Yes. And it doesn't become a possession. And suddenly I think about church community and volunteering again of like, we talk about spiritual gifts. Like I have the gift of hospitality. I'm like, is it a possession or a gift? I possess hospitality. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, it's a gift, which means you have to keep giving it. Right. It's like, I have the gift of teaching, then give it. And God doesn't want to enslave us into volunteerism. That's right. Even though we freely get gifts from God. He's desiring us to gift him our service, gift him, not out of transaction. That's right. And that's so beautiful. I don't know if you've seen what we're doing at Care Impact. We have this online technology called the Care Portal. And one of the things that we love to do is help churches and community create that community. And so a social worker or a caseworker who knows a family in need or a youth aging out, they can enter with that person's permission enter in a specific needs that this community is having. Because let's face it, we don't know our neighbors anymore. We don't know who's sleeping on the floor, who has bed bugs, and who's going through abuse. We just don't know the privacy acts and our individualism. So to counterattack that lack of community, we've been using the care portal. So now we can identify where the needs are because the organizations that we're working with in the cities, they're able to put those needs in. And the churches that we are working with and training to respond are able to respond to that. What we're saying specifically is is some of the words you're saying, it's not a transaction. Yeah. It's a gift. It's actually a gift of connection more than the possession. Yes, this is actually a need. They do need some beds and they do need support so that that family can reunify. But let's face it, it it can be very hard. I, I put myself into your shoes when you're saying, okay, wait a minute, I feel gypped a little bit. Nobody said thank you. Or there's a There's a need to have that reciprocated, but I love the idea of gifting things forward. And and I would say not just the things we give, but the connections we make are gifts. There's a tradition on the West Coast uh, Indigenous Nations there uh, called the potlatch. Yes, the Salish. It's where we get the word potluck from. Right. Church potluck, that when the, the settler missionaries were like, oh, potluck, potlatch. And so uh, my understanding of potlatch is that, you know, there's a big party. You, you have a big party. And at the end of the night, you give everything you own away. And the man in the community who's able to give the most away 
is the most highly esteemed man. So he would be like the chief or, or have a leadership role because he's judged by how much he gives away, not how much he can keep. And I know like for me as a, as a, like a white settler who, who grew up in like hyper individualistic, like capitalism, mm-hmm. I'm like, well, how could you do that? Like if you came to my house, Wendy, and at the end of the night, I'm like, would you like my laptop? And then to like your husband, I'm like, here's my car. It's like, though, no, that doesn't work mm-hmm. unless you were inviting me to a party at your house next week. And mm-hmm. at the end of the night, I was going to get a laptop and my husband was going to get a car. <laughs> and so it only works if the whole community is shaped by it. It can't be a private spirituality. It's a public participation in an alternative economy. Mm-hmm. And so the, the man who can give the most away, like to be known by your generosity, this idea, I think about it so often. And when I read Philippians 2, it's like Jesus, though in his very nature is God, never exploited that. He gave it all away. Right. He didn't possess the power of God and say, this is mine. I have it. You don't. I'm better than you. I'm all powerful. You're nothing. He gave it all away. And I'm like, if our God is a potlatching God and the one who is able to give the most away is the the most trustworthy, then Jesus is the trustworthy one because he gave Mm. it all away. And I think we, we often end up burning ourselves out at church because we're still trying to say, all to him I owe. Like Jesus mm-hmm. gave me his life. The least I could do is volunteer at my church for 20 hours a week. It's yeah. not a transaction. That's right. So, so we're, our mind is still being shaped by Pharaoh's economy and we're tired. And mm-hmm. God's like giving it away. Like I remember that Cree elder told me, you know, Nikila, if you actually joined our community, like didn't just pop in once in a while for like a spiritual top up. I was like, oh, but that's what people do at church. <laughs> um, but, but like actually move into the neighborhood, like incarnate. Yeah become flesh among us, like like join us as equals, not like a missionary project. Right. You're going to be a really old lady one day and you're going to come over to the lodge. She's like, I'll be dead and gone by then. And you'll be old and you'll see a tattered up quilt over there and a young mom nursing her baby under it. And you'll say, I know that quilt. And she'll say, mm. it's a gift and she'll give it to you. And that quilt will make its way back. And mm. so when you give your things away, you know that they circle back. You're not losing it forever. So if Mm. I know that I'm going to get this quilt back or I know that this quilt one day is going to go to my great, great, great granddaughter, then I'm going to slow down and I'm going to make every stitch with all my love. Mm. And that quilt is a gift. The one I ordered on Amazon that was made in a factory by someone who is enslaved, who got the material from a land that is being exploited so hard it's literally on like chemical life support. Mm-hmm. That quilt isn't going to make it past my house. It's going to be six months and go to Goodwill. And spend 200 years in the landfill oh, yeah. <laughs> trying to disintegrate, right? Yeah. Wow. Our possessions will outlast us. Mm-hmm. And we're alone. We're feeling, I feel, I notice people are feeling loneliness. They're feeling extremely overwhelmed and tired. And we read the news and we just feel despair. Like there's no hope. Right. Yeah. Well, Nikayla, there is so much more. We're going to have to have you back, but uh, there's so much more we could talk about on this. I'm mindful of the time. But just to wrap up here, how can we bring back the joy? How can we pursue joy this Christmas in a non-capitalistic, pseudo-joy kind of way? What is one thing that we can all be challenged by? 
I know you're like, really quick wrap up. What's that? A real quick thing. I'm like, <laughs> starting in Genesis. We're slowly, we're, I'm sure. I, I really believe that when I turn my eye towards the gifts I've received, towards what I already have, uh, will stir in me a gratitude, which will be a light that shines in that darkness of jealousy and uh, mm. resentment. And so I guess just a sort of very small example, but one thing that my family started doing for Christmas. So for stockings, I don't rush out and try and find cheap trinkets that will sit in a landfill forever to stuff in a stocking. Mm -hmm. Instead, what we do is the day before Christmas, like I'll go through the house and find things that we already own that are just silly things we take for granted, but we really appreciate. Mm -hmm. And we put them in each other's stocking. So before you open any gifts on Christmas morning, I have my stocking. And so my kids and my husband have collected things in my house. So I sit down, I'm like, hey, it's, this is my favorite peppermill. Yeah. Hey, this is my favorite coffee mug. You guys know I, this is my favorite <laughs> mug and like mom's favorite socks. Nice. And it's this moment of like, I already have so many things I love. I love these things so much. Thank you guys. Yeah. Like, thanks for reminding me of the things I already have that I love. Mm. And then you mm -hmm. sit down and open gifts. And it's like the joy comes from participating in that that gift economy and extending release to one another. And I even think at the heart of our faith, that's what it means to forgive is to say, um, I release you from this debt. You don't owe me anything. Yeah. If you come towards me, come freely. Do not come because you're guilted or obligated. Right. I release you. I release you. And for me, Advent and joy begins at that place of release of like, you don't have to call me back. I release you. And I think if we trust that we've released one another, it becomes really easy to ask for help. And God loves a cheerful giver. When we cheerfully give it away, not just an aha, I'm just going to be happy and wear a fake smile, but there is something chemically that like science will prove that the act of giving in your brain, there are endorphins, dopamine that goes surging through your body just when we totally release things open handedly to people and give it away. And I just want to encourage our listeners, we can never outgive God and it's not a transaction and we don't have to earn God's approval. But joy comes in giving. Joy comes in following our Father's footsteps. He gave it all away. And, and could we be those potlatchers uh, this Christmas? Thank you, Nikayla, so much for the way you have shared. I so appreciate your perspective and the, the valuable research and study and just your heart for this topic. Is there a way that our listeners might follow any of your work or stay connected? Yeah, I recently started a Substack, and I try and put out some of my devotional sermon notes and poetry and whatnot a few times a month. So that's just at nikaylareese.substack.com. And yeah, that would be lovely. Well, there you have it. And I uh, just want to wish everybody a joyful Christmas. Thank you for joining another conversation on Journey with Care. We're here to inspire curious Canadians on their path of faith and living life with purpose in community. Journey with Care is an initiative of Care Impact, a Canadian charity dedicated to connecting and equipping the whole church to journey well in community. Visit our website at journeywithcare.ca to connect with Care Impact, find the latest updates on our weekly episodes, details about our upcoming events, meetups, and information about our incredible guests. You can also leave us a voice message, share your thoughts, and connect with like-minded individuals who are on their own journeys of faith and purpose. Thank you for sharing this podcast with your friends. Together we can explore ways to journey in a good way. And always remember to stay curious. 